Chapter Five, Part Two of the History of Standard Oil, Volume One by Ida Tarbell. Recording by Tom Weiss. Laying the Foundations of a Trust. Mr. Rockefeller now had something besides a theory to present to the gentleman he wished to go into his third scheme. He had the most persuasive of all arguments, an actual achievement. Three years ago, he could tell them, I took over the Cleveland refineries. I have managed them so that today I pay a profit to nobody. I do my own buying. I make my own acid in barrels. I control the New York terminals of both the Erie and Central roads and ship such quantities that the railroads give me better rates than they do any other shipper. In 1873, I shipped over 700,000 barrels by the Central, and my profit on my capitalization, $2,500,000, was over $1,000,000. This is the result of combination in one city. The railroads now have arranged a new tariff by which they mean to put us all on an equal footing. They say they will give no rebates to anyone, but if we can join with Cleveland, the strongest forces in other great shipping points, and apply to them the same tactics I have employed, we shall become the largest shipper and can demand a rebate in return for an equal division of our freight. We proved in 1872 and 1873 that we could not do anything by an open association. Let us who see what a combination strictly carried out will effect unite secretly to accomplish it. Let us become the nucleus of a private company which gradually shall acquire control of all refineries everywhere, become the only shippers, and consequently the master of the railroads in the matter of freight rates. It was six hours before the gentlemen in conference left the pavilion, and when they came out Mr. Warren and Mr. Lockhart had agreed to transfer their refineries in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh to the Standard Oil Company of Cleveland, taking stock in exchange. They had also agreed to absorb as rapidly as persuasion or other means could bring it about, the refineries in their neighborhood. Their union with the Standard was to remain an absolute secret, the concerns operating under their respective names. On October 15, 1874, Mr. Rockefeller consummated another purchase of as great importance. He bought the works of Charles Pratt & Company of New York City. As before, the purchase was secret. The strategic importance of these purchases for one holding Mr. Rockefeller's vast ambition was enormous. It gave him as allies men who were among the most successful refiners, without doubt, in each of the three great refining centers of the country, outside of Cleveland, where he ruled, and of the creek where he had learned that neither he nor any member of the South Improvement Company could do business with facility. To meet these purchases the stock of the Standard Oil Company was increased on March 10, 1875, to $3,500,000. The value of the concern as a money earner at this early date, 1874, is shown by the fact that Pratt & Company paid not less than two sixty-five for the Standard stock they received in exchange for their works. The first intimation that the oil region had that Mr. Rockefeller was pushing another combination was in March of 1875, when it was announced that an organization of refiners called the Central Association, of which he was president, had been formed. 
Its main points were that if a refiner would lease to the association his plant for a term of months, he would be allowed to subscribe for stock of the new company. The lease allowed the owner to do his own manufacturing, but gave Mr. Rockefeller's company irrevocable authority to make all purchases of crude oil and sales of refined, to decide how much each refinery should manufacture, and to negotiate for all freight and pipeline expenses. The Central Association was a most clever device. It furnished the secret partners of Mr. Rockefeller a plausible proposition with which to approach the firms of which they wished to obtain control. Little as the oil regions knew of the real meaning of the Central Association, the news of its organization raised a cry of monopoly, and the advocates of the new scheme felt called upon to defend it. The defense took the line that the condition of the trade made such a combination of refineries necessary. Altogether, the ablest explanation was that of H. H. Rogers, of Charles Pratt and Company, to a reporter of the New York Tribune. There are five refining points in the country, said Mr. Rogers, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Cleveland, the oil regions, and New York City. Each of these has certain local advantages which may be briefly stated as follows. Pittsburgh cheap oil, Philadelphia, the seaboard, Cleveland, cheap barrels and canal as well as railroad transportation, the oil regions, crude oil at the lowest figure, and all the products of petroleum have the best market in New York City. The supply of oil is three or four times greater than the demand. If the oil refineries were run to their full capacity, the market would be overstocked. The business is not regular but spasmodic. When the market is brisk and oil is in demand, all the oil interests are busy and enjoy a fair share of prosperity. At other times the whole trade is affected by the dullness. It has been estimated that not less than twenty millions of dollars are invested in the oil business. It is therefore to the interest of every man who has put a dollar in it to have the trade protected and established on a permanent footing. Speculators have ruined the market. The brokers heretofore have been speculating upon the market with disastrous effects upon the trade, and this new order of things will force them to pursue their legitimate calling and realize their profits from their industry and perseverance. Two years ago an attempt was made to organize an oil refiners' association, but it was subsequently abandoned. There was no cohesion of interest and agreements were not kept. The movement at the present time is a revival of the former idea and it is believed has already fully secured nine-tenths of the oil refiners in the country in its favor. I do not believe there is any intention among the oil men to bull the market. The endeavor is to equalize all around and protect the capital invested. If by common consent, in good faith, the refiners agree to reduce the quantities to an allotment for each, made in view of the supply and demand, and the capacity for production, the market can be regulated with a reasonable profit for all. The price of oil today is fifteen cents per gallon. The proposed allotment of business would probably advance the price to twenty cents. To make an artificial increase with immense profits would be recognized as speculative instead of legitimate, and the oil interest would suffer accordingly. Temporary capital would compete with permanent investment and ruin everything. The oil producers today are bankrupt. There have been more failures during the last five months than in five years previously. An organization to protect the oil capital is imperatively needed. Oil to yield a fair profit should be sold for 25 cents per gallon. 
that price would protect every interest and cover every outlay for getting out the crude petroleum transporting by railroad refining and the incidental charges of handling etc the foreign markets will regulate the price to a great extent because they are the greatest consumers the people of china germany and other foreign countries cannot afford to pay high prices kerosene oil is a luxury to them and they do not receive sufficient compensation for their labor to enable them to use this oil at an extravagant price the price therefore must be kept within reasonable limits the oil regions refused flatly to accept this view of the situation the world would not buy refined at twenty-five cents they argued you injured the foreign market in eighteen seventy two by putting up the price our only hope is in increasing consumption the world is buying more oil today than ever before because it is cheap we must learn to accept small profits as other industries do the formation of the refiners association has thrust upon the trade an element of uncertainty that has unsettled all sound views as to the general outlook said the derrick the scope of the association wrote a pittsburgh critic is an attempt to control the refining of oil with the ultimate purpose of advancing its price and reaping a rich harvest in profits this can only be done by reducing the production of refined oil and this will in turn act on crude oil making the stock so far in excess of the demand as to send it down to a lower figure than it has yet touched the most important feature of this contract said a veteran refiner is perhaps that part which provides that the executive committee of the central association are to have the exclusive power to arrange with the railroads for the carrying of the crude and refined oil it is intended by this provision to enable the executive committee to speak for the whole trade in securing special rates of freight whereby independent shippers of crude oil and such refiners as refuse to join the combination and any new refining interest that may be started may be driven out of the trade the whole general purpose of the combination is to reap a large margin by depressing crude and raising the price of refined oil, and the chief means employed is the system of discrimination in railroad freights to the seaboard. The veteran refiner was right in his supposition that Mr. Rockefeller intended to use the enormous power his combination gave him to get a special rate. As a matter of fact, he had seen to that before the veteran refiner expressed his mind. It will be remembered that in April 1874 Mr. Rockefeller had made a contract with the Erie by which he was to ship 50% of his refined oil over that road at a rate as low as any competing line gave any shipper, and he was to have a lease on the Weehawken oil terminal. Now this contract remained in force until the 1st of March 1875, when a new one was made with the Erie, guaranteeing the road the same percentage of freight and giving the standard a ten percent rebate on whatever open tariff should be fixed this rebate mr blanchard says was quite independent of what the central might be giving the standard he says that one reason the standard was given the rebate was that it was suspected the pennsylvania was allowing the empire transportation company an even larger one if true this would not affect any refiner necessarily as the empire was not a refiner in march eighteen seventy five the real reason of course was what mr blanchard gives later that by this rebate they kept the standard trade now greatly increased by the purchase of the outside works already mentioned 
although it should be noticed the Erie officials knew nothing of the Standard having control of any refinery than that of Charles Pratt & Company. The announcement of the Central Association put an altogether new feature on oil transportation. If this organization succeeded, and the refiners in it claimed nine-tenths of the capacity of the country, it gave Mr. Rockefeller irrevocable authority to negotiate freights. The Pennsylvania Road immediately felt the pressure. The oil they had carried for big firms like those of Charles Lockhart in Pittsburgh and of Warden Frew and Company in Philadelphia was in the hands of the Standard Oil Company, and Mr. Rockefeller asked the rebate of 10% on open rates. The road demurred. Colonel Potts objected strenuously. Three years later in a paper discussing this rebate and its consequences, he said, The rebate was a modest one, as was its recipient yet the railway Cassandras prophesied from it a multitude of evils, a gradual destruction of all other refiners and a gradual absorption of their property by the favorite, who, with this additional armament, would rapidly progress towards the control of all cars, all pipes, all production, and finally of the roads themselves. Their prophecies met but little faith or consideration. The standard leaders themselves were especially active in discouraging any such radical purpose their little rebate was enough for them. Everybody else should prosper, as would be shortly seen. They needed no more refineries. They had already more than they could employ. Why should they hunger after greater burdens? It was the railroads they chiefly cared for, and next in their affections stood the one hundred rival refineries. Such beneficent longings as still remained, and their bosoms overflowed with them, spread out their steady waves toward the poor producers whom, not to be impious, they had always been ready to gather under their wings, yet they would not. This unselfish language soothed all alarm into quiet slumbering. It resembles the gentle fanning of the vampire's wings, and it had the same end in view, the undisturbed abstraction of the victim's blood. Colonel Potts's argument against the rebate, doubtless clothed in much less picturesque language in 1875 than his feelings stirred him to in 1878, for a good enough reason too, as we shall see, failed to convince the Pennsylvania officials. They decided to yield to the standard. Mr. Cassatt, then third vice-president of the road, in charge of transportation, said in 1879 that the rebate was given because they found the standard was getting very strong, that they had the backing of the other roads, and that if the Pennsylvania wanted to retain its full share of business and at fair rates, they must make arrangements to protect themselves. No one of the roads knew certainly what the others were doing for the Standard until October 1, 1875. The freight agents then met to discuss again the freight pool they had formed in 1874. It had not been working with perfect satisfaction. The clause granting the rebate of twenty-two cents to the pipelines, which sustained an agreed rate of pipage, had been abandoned after about five months' experiment. It was thought to stimulate new pipes. The roads, in making a new adjustment, made no effort to regulate pipeline tariffs. The crude rebate, as it was called, carrying oil to a refinery for nothing, was left in force. At this meeting Mr. Blanchard found that both of the Erie's big rivals were granting the Standard a ten percent rebate. He also found that he was not getting fifty percent of the Standard's business as the contract called for, 
that the Standard controlled not only for the Cleveland and New York works of which he knew, but large works in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Mr. Rockefeller was certainly now in an excellent condition to work out his plan of bringing under his own control all the refineries of the country. The Standard Oil owned in each of the great refining centers, New York, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia, a large and aggressive plant run by the men who had built it up. These works were, so far as the public knew, still independent, and their only relation that of the Central Association. As a matter of fact, they were the Central Association. Not only had Mr. Rockefeller brought these powerful interests into his concern, he had secured for them a rebate of ten percent on a rate which should always be as low as any one of the roads gave any of his competitors. He had done away with middlemen, that is, he was paying nobody a profit. He was undeniably a force wonderfully constructed for what he wanted to do, and one made practically impregnable as things were in the oil business then, by virtue of its special transportation rate. As soon as his new line was complete, the work of acquiring all outside refineries began at each of the oil centers. Unquestionably the acquisitions were made through persuasion when this was possible. If the party approached refused to lease or sell, he was told firmly what Mr. Rockefeller had told the Cleveland refiners when he went to them in 1872 with the South Improvement contracts, that there was no hope for him, that a combination was in progress which was bound to work, and that those who stayed out would inevitably go to the wall. Naturally the first fruits to fall into the hands of the new alliance were those refineries which were embarrassed or discouraged by the conditions which Mr. Rogers explains above. Take as an example the case of Citizens Oil Refining Company of Pittsburgh, as it was explained in 1888 to the House Committee on Manufactures in its trust investigation. A. H. Tack, a partner in the company, told the story. We began in 1869 with a capacity of 1,000 barrels a day. At the start everything was couleur de ruse, so much so that we put our works in splendid shape. We manufactured all the products. We even got it down to making wax and using the very last residuum in the boilers. We got the works in magnificent order and used up everything. We began to feel the squeeze in 1872. We did not know what was the matter. Of course we were all affected the same way in Pennsylvania, and of course we commenced shifting about and meeting together, and forming delegations, and going down to Philadelphia to see the Pennsylvania Railroad, meeting after meeting, and delegation after delegation. We suspected there was something wrong, and told those men there there was something wrong somewhere, that we felt so far as our position was concerned we had the cheapest barrels, the cheapest labor, and the cheapest coal and the route from the crude district was altogether in our favor. We had a railroad and a river to bring us our raw material. We had made our investment based on the seaboard routes, and we wanted the Pennsylvania Railroad to protect us. But none of our meetings or delegations ever amounted to anything. They were always repulsed in some way, put off, and we never got any satisfaction. The consequence was that in two or three years there was no margin or profit. In order to overcome that we commenced speculating, in the hope that there would be a change some time or other for the better. We did not like the idea of giving up the ship. Now during these times the Standard Oil Company increased so perceptibly and so strong that we at once recognized it as the element. 
Instead of looking to the railroad, I always looked to the Standard Oil Company. In 1874 I went to see Rockefeller to find if we could make arrangements with him by which we could run a portion of our works. It was a very brief interview. He said there was no hope for us at all. He remarked this. I cannot give the exact quotation. There is no hope for us, and probably, he said, there is no hope for any of us. But he says, the weakest must go first. And we went. All over the country the refineries in the same condition as Mr. Tack's firm sold or leased. Those who felt the hard times and had any hope of weathering them resisted at first. With many of them the resistance was due simply to their love of their business and their unwillingness to share its control with outsiders. The thing which a man has begun, cared for, led to a healthy life, from which he has begun to gather fruit, which he knows he can make greater and richer, he loves as he does his life. It is one of the fruits of his life. He is jealous of it, wishes the honor of it, will not divide it with another. He can suffer heavily his own mistakes, learn from them, correct them. He can fight opposition, bear all, so long as the work is his. There were refiners in 1875 who loved their business in this way. Why one should love an oil refinery the outsider may not see but to the man who had begun with one still and had seen it grow by his own energy and intelligence to ten, who now sold five hundred barrels a day where he once sold five, the refinery was the dearest spot on earth save his home. He walked with pride among its evil-smelling places, watched the processes with eagerness, experimented with joy, and recounted triumphantly every improvement. To ask such a man to give up his refinery was to ask him to give up the thing which, after his family, meant most in life to him. To Mr. Rockefeller this feeling was a weak sentiment. To place love of independent work above love of profits was as incomprehensible to him as a refusal to accept a rebate because it was wrong. Where persuasion failed them it was necessary in his judgment that pressure be applied simply a pressure sufficient to demonstrate to these blind or recalcitrant individuals the impossibility of their long being able to do business independently. It was a pressure varied according to locality. Usually it took the form of cutting their market. The system of predatory competition was no invention of the Standard Oil Company. It had prevailed in the oil business from the start. Indeed, it was one of the evils Mr. Rockefeller claimed his combination would cure, but until now it had been used spasmodically. Mr. Rockefeller never did anything spasmodically. He applied underselling for destroying his rival's market with the same deliberation and persistency that characterized all his efforts, and in the long run he always won. There were other forms of pressure. Sometimes the independents found it impossible to get oil. Again they were obliged to wait days for cars to ship in. There seemed to be no end to the ways of making it hard for men to do business, of discouraging them until they would sell or lease, and always at the psychological moment a purchaser was at their side. Take as an example the case of the Harkness refinery in Philadelphia, a story told to the same committee as that of Mr. Tack. I was the originator of the enterprise, said William W. Harkness believing that there was no better place than Philadelphia to refine oil, particularly for export. We commenced then, as near as I can now recollect, 
about 1870, and we made money up to probably 1874. We managed our business very close and did not speculate in oil. We bought and we sold, and we paid a great deal of attention to the statistical part of our business so as to save waste, and we did a nice business. But we found in some years that probably five months out of a year we could not sell our oil unless it would be at a positive loss, and then we stopped. Then, when we could sell our oil, we found a difficulty about getting cars. My brother would complain of it, but I believed that the time would come when that would be equalized. I had no idea of the iniquity that was going on. I could not conceive it. I went on in good faith until about 1874, and then the trouble commenced. We could not get our oil and were compelled to sell at a loss. Then Warden Frew and Company formed some kind of running arrangement where they supplied the crude, and we seemed to get along a little better. After a while the business got complicated, and I got tired and handed it over to my brother. I backed out. That was about 1875. I was dissatisfied and wanted to do an independent business, or else I wanted to give it up. In 1876, I recollect that very well because it was the year of the Centennial Exposition, we were at the Centennial Exposition. I was sitting in front of the great Corliss engine, admiring it, and he told me there was a good opportunity to get out. Warden Frew and Company, he said, were prepared to buy us out, and I asked him whether he considered that as the best thing to do, whether we had not better hold on and fight it through, for I believed that these difficulties would not continue, that we would get our oil. I knew he was a competent refiner, and I wanted to continue business, but he said he thought he had better make this arrangement, and I consented, and we sold out. We got our investment back. Here we have a refiner discouraged by the conditions which Mr. Rockefeller claims his aggregation will cure. Under the rudder circular and the discrimination in freight to the standard which followed, his difficulty in getting oil increases, and he consents to a running arrangement with Mr. Rockefeller's partner in Philadelphia, but he wants to do an independent business. Impossible. As he sits watching the smooth and terrible power of that famous Corliss engine of 1876, an engine which showed to thousands for the first time what great power properly directed means, he realized that something very like it was at work in the oil business, something resistless, silent, perfect in its might, and he sold out to that something. Everywhere men did the same. The history of oil refining on Oil Creek from 1875 to 1879 is almost uncanny. There were, at the beginning of that period, twenty-seven plants in the region, most of which were in a fair condition, considering the difficulties in the business. During 1873 the demand for refined oil had greatly increased, the exports nearly doubling over those of 1872. The average profit on refined that year in a well-managed refinery was not less than three cents a gallon. During the first half of 1874 the oil business had been depressed, but the oil refiners were looking for better times when the rudder circular completely demoralized them by putting fifty cents extra freight charges on their shipments without an equivalent raise on competitive points. It was not only this extra charge, enough to cut off their profits, as business then stood, but it was that the same set of men who had thrown their business into confusion in 1872 was again at work. 
the announcement of the central association with mr rockefeller's name at its head confirmed their fears nevertheless at first none of the small refiners would listen to the proposition to sell or lease made them in the spring of eighteen seventy five by the representative first sent out by the central association they would have nothing to do they said bluntly with any combination engineered by john d rockefeller the representative withdrew and the case was considered in the meantime conditions on the creek grew harder all sorts of difficulties began to be strewn in their way cars were hard to get the markets they had built up were cut under them a demoralizing conviction was abroad in the trade that this new and mysterious combination was going to succeed that it was doing rapidly what its members were reported to be saying daily we mean to secure the entire refining business of the world such was the state of things on the creek when in early fall of eighteen seventy five an energetic young refiner and oil buyer well known in the oil regions j d archbald appeared in titusville as the representative of a new company the acme oil company a concern which everybody believed to be an offshoot of the standard oil company of cleveland though nobody could prove it as a matter of fact the acme was capitalized and controlled entirely by standard men its stockholders being in addition to mr archbald william rockefeller william g warden frank q barstow and charles pratt it was evident at once that the acme oil company had come into the oil regions for the purpose of absorbing the independent interest as mr rockefeller and his colleagues were absorbing them elsewhere the work was done with a promptness and dispatch which do great credit to the energy and resourcefulness of the engineer of the enterprise in three years by eighteen seventy eight all but two of the refineries of titusville had retired from the business gloriously as mr archbald flushed with victory told the council of the commonwealth of pennsylvania in eighteen seventy nine when the state authorities were trying to find what was at work in the oil interest to cause such a general collapse most of the concerns were bought outright the owners being convinced that it was impossible for them to do an independent business and being unwilling to try combination all down the creek the little refineries which for years had faced every difficulty with stout hearts collapsed sold out dismantled shut down is the melancholy record of the industry during those four years at the end practically nothing was left in the oil regions but the acme of titusville and the imperial of oil city both of them now under standard management to the oil men this sudden wiping out of the score of plants with which they had been familiar for years seemed a crime which nothing could justify their bitterness of heart was only intensified by the sight of the idle refiners thrown out of business by the sale of their factories these men had many of them handsome sums to invest but what were they to put them in they were refiners and they carried a pledge in their pockets not to go into that business for a period of ten years some of them tried to discourage oil man's fatal resource the market and as a rule left their money there one refiner who had according to popular report received two hundred thousand dollars for his business speculated the entire sum away in less than a year others tried new enterprises but men of forty learned new trades with difficulty and failure followed many of them the scars left in the oil regions by the standard combination of eighteen seventy five to eighteen seventy nine 
are too deep and ugly for men and women of this generation to forget them. In Pittsburgh the same thing was happening. At the beginning of the work of absorption, 1874, there were between twenty-two and thirty refineries in the town. As we have seen, Lockhart and Frew sold to the Standard Oil Company of Cleveland sometime in 1874. In the fall of that year, a new company was formed in Pittsburgh, called the Standard Oil Company of Pittsburgh. Its president was Charles Lockhart, its directors William Frew, David Bushnell, H. M. Flagler, and W. G. Warden, all members of the Standard Oil Company, and four of them stockholders in the South Improvement Company. This company at once began to lease or buy refineries. Many of the Pittsburgh refiners made a valiant fight to get rates on their oil which would enable them to run independently. To save expense they tried to bring oil from the oil fields by barge. The pipelines in the pool refused to run oil to barges, the railroad to accept oil brought down by barge. An independent pipeline attempted to bring it down to Pittsburgh, but to reach the works the pipeline must run under a branch of the Pennsylvania Railroad. It refused to permit this, and for months the oil from the line was hauled in wagons from the point where it had been held up over the railroad track, and there re-piped and carried to Pittsburgh. At every point they met interference, until finally, one by one, they gave in. According to Mr. Frew, who in 1879 was examined as to the condition of things in Pittsburgh, the company began to acquire refiners in 1875. In 1877 they bought their last one, and at the time Mr. Frew was under examination, he could not remember but one refinery in operation in Pittsburgh not controlled by his company. Nor was it refiners only who sold out. All departments of the trade began to yield to the pressure. There was in the oil business a class of men known as shippers. They brought crude oil, sent it east, and sold it to refineries there. Among the largest of these was Adnan Nehart, whose active representative was W. T. Scheide. Now, to Mr. Rockefeller, the independent shipper was an incubus. He did a business which, in his judgment, a firm ought to do for itself, and reaped a profit which might go direct into the business. Besides, so long as there were shippers to supply crude to the eastern refineries at living prices, so long these concerns might resist offers to sell or lease. Sometime in the fall of 1872 Mr. Scheide began to lose his customers in New York. He found that they were making some kind of a working arrangement with the Standard Oil Company, just what he did not know. But at all events, they no longer bought from him, but from the Standard Buyer, J. A. Boswick and Company. At the same time, he became convinced that Mr. Rockefeller was after his business. I knew that they were making some strenuous efforts to get our business, he told the Hepburn Commission in 1879 because I used to meet Mr. Rockefeller in the Erie office. At the same time that he was facing the loss of customers and the demoralizing conviction that the Standard Oil wanted his business, he was experiencing more or less disgust over business conditions in New York. I did not like the character of my customers there, Mr. Scheide told the committee. I did not think they were treating us fairly and squarely. There was a strong competition in handling oil. The competition had got to be so strong that outside refiners, as they called themselves then, used to go around bidding up the price of their works on the Standard Oil Company, and they were using me to sell the refineries to the Standard. They would say to refiners, 
Nahart will do so and so, and we are going to continue running. And they would say to us that the Standard was offering lower prices. I recollect one instance in which they, after having made a contract to buy oil from me if I would bring it over the Erie Railway, broke that contract for one one hundred and twenty-eighth part of a cent of a gallon. I sold out the next week. When Mr. Scheide went to the freight agent of the Erie Road, Mr. Blanchard, and told him of his decision to sell, Mr. Blanchard tried to dissuade him. During the conversation he let out a fact which must have convinced Mr. Scheide more fully than ever that he had been wise in determining to give up his business. Mr. Blanchard told him as a reason for his staying and trusting to the Erie Road to keep its contracts with him that the Standard Oil had been offering him five cents more a barrel than Mr. Scheide was paying them, and would take all their cars and load them all regularly if they would throw him over and give them the business. It is interesting to note that when Mr. Scheide sold in the spring of 1875 it was, as he supposed, to Charles Pratt and Company. Well informed as he was in all the intricacies of the business, and there were few abler or more energetic men in trade at the time, he did not know that Charles Pratt and Company had been part and parcel of the Standard Oil Company since October 1874. Of course, securing a large crude shipping business like Mr. Nahart's was a valuable point for the Standard. It threw all of the refiners whom he had supplied out of crude oil and forced several of them to come to the Standard buyer, a first step, of course, toward a lease or sale. At every point, indeed, making it difficult for the refiner to get his raw product was one of the favorite maneuvers of the combination. It was not only to crude oil it was applied. Factories which worked up the residuum or tar into lubricating oil and depended on standard plants for their supply were cut off. There was one such in Cleveland, the firm of Moorhouse and Freeman. Mr. Moorhouse had begun to experiment with lubricating oils in 1861, and in 1871 the report of the Cleveland Board of Trade devoted several of its pages to a description of his business. According to this account, he was then making oils adapted to lubricating all kinds of machinery. He held patents for several brands and trademarks, and had produced that year over 25,000 barrels of different lubricants besides 120,000 boxes of axle grease. At this time he was buying his stock or residuum from one or another of the 25 Cleveland refiners. Then came the South Improvement Company and the concentration of the town's refining interest in Mr. Rockefeller's hands. Mr. Moorhouse, according to the testimony he gave the Hepburn Commission in 1879, went to Mr. Rockefeller after the consolidation to arrange for supplies. He was welcomed, the Standard Oil Company had not at that time begun to deal in lubricating oils, and encouraged to build a new plant. This was done at a cost of $41,000, and a contract was made with the Standard Oil Company for a daily supply of 85 barrels of residuum. Sometime in 1874 this supply was cut down to 12 barrels. The price was put up too, and contracts for several months were demanded so that Mr. Moorhouse got no advantage from the variation in crude prices. Then the freights went up on the railroads. He paid $1.50 and $2 for what he says he felt sure his big neighbor was paying but seventy or seventy-five cents. There is no evidence of any such low rate to the standard from Cleveland to New York by rail. 
Now it was impossible for Mr. Moorhouse to supply his trade on twelve barrels of stock. He begged Mr. Rockefeller for more. It was there in the Standard Oil Works. Why could he not have it? He could pay for it. He and his partner offered to buy five thousand barrels and store it. But Mr. Rockefeller was firm. All he could give Mr. Moorhouse was twelve barrels a day. I saw readily what that meant, said Mr. Moorhouse. That meant squeeze you out. Buy your works. They have got the works and are running them. I am without anything. They paid about fifteen thousand dollars for what cost me forty-one thousand dollars. He said that he had facilities for freighting and that the coal oil business belonged to them, and any concern that would start in that business they had sufficient money to lay aside a fund to wipe them out. These are his words. At every refining center in the country, this process of consolidation, through persuasion, intimidation, or force, went on. As fast as a refinery was brought in line, its work was assigned to it. If it was an old and poorly equipped plant, it was usually dismantled or shut down. If it was badly placed, that is, if it was not economically placed in regard to a pipeline and railroad, it was dismantled even though in excellent condition. If it was a large and well-equipped plant advantageously located, it was assigned a certain quota to manufacture, and it did nothing but manufacture. The buying of crude, the making of freight rates, the selling of the output remained with Mr. Rockefeller. The contracts under which all the refineries brought into line were run were of the most detailed and rigid description, and they were executed as a rule with a secrecy which baffles description. Take, for example, a running arrangement made by Rockefeller in 1876 with the Cleveland refiner, that of Schofield, Shermer, and Teagle. The members of this concern had all been in the refining business in Cleveland in 1872 and had all handed over their works to Mr. Rockefeller when he notified them of the South Improvement Company's contracts. Mr. Shermer declared once in an affidavit that he alone lost $20,000 by that maneuver. The members of the firm had not stayed out of business, however. Recovering from the panic caused by the South Improvement Company, they had united in 1875, building a refinery worth $65,000 with a yearly capacity of 180,000 barrels of crude. On the first year's business they made $40,000. Although this was doing well, they were convinced they might do better if they could get as good freight rates as the Standard Oil Company, and in the spring of 1876 they brought suit against the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern and the New York Central and Hudson River Railroads for unlawful and unjust discrimination, partialities and preferences made, and practice in favor of the Standard Oil Company enabling the said Standard Oil Company to obtain to a great extent the monopoly of the oil and naphtha trade of Cleveland. The suit was not carried through at the time. Mr. Rockefeller seems to have suggested a surer way to the firm of getting the rates they wanted. This was to make a running arrangement with them. He seems to have demonstrated to them that they could make more money under his plan than outside, and they signed a contract for a remarkable joint adventure. According to this document, Schofield, Shermer, and Teagle put into the business a plant worth at that time about $73,000 and their entire time. Mr. Rockefeller put in $10,000 and his rebates. That is, he secured for the firm the same preferential rates on their shipments that the Standard Oil Company enjoyed. 
The firm bound itself not to refine over 85,000 barrels a year, and neither jointly nor separately to engage in any other form of oil business for ten years, the life of the contract. Schofield, Shermer, and Teagle were guaranteed a profit of $35,000 a year. Profits over $35,000 went to Mr. Rockefeller up to $70,000. Any further profits were divided. The making of this contract and its execution were attended by all the secret rights peculiar to Mr. Rockefeller's business ventures. According to the testimony of one of the firm given a few years later on the witness stand in Cleveland, the contract was signed at night at Mr. Rockefeller's house on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland, where he told the gentlemen that they must not tell even their wives about the new arrangement, that if they made money they must conceal it, they were not to drive fast horses, put on style, or do anything to let people suspect there were unusual profits in oil refining. That would invite competition. They were told that all accounts were to be kept secret. Fictitious names were to be used in corresponding, and a special box at the post office was employed for these fictitious characters. In fact, smugglers and housebreakers never surrounded their operations with more mystery. But make his operations as thickly as he might in secrecy, the effect of Mr. Rockefeller's steady and united attack on the refining business was daily becoming more apparent. Before the end of 1876, the alarm among oil producers, the few independent refineries still in business, and even in certain railroad circles, was serious. On all sides, talk of a united effort to meet the consolidation was heard. End of Chapter 5, Part 2. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks dot com.